This will be Matthew 17. Tonight is what, January 14th. Is that right? It's Wednesday, January 14th. Uh, the folks that will be hearing this on CD are going to miss out our last two tapings we thought that we got, we didn't get. So they missed the Transfiguration teaching and then uh, last Sunday's teaching. But we're going to be in Matthew 17. Are you all there? The beginning of Matthew 17 uh, is the transfiguration. And we won't recap that teaching, but I, I do want you to remember something. If you didn't get anything else out of last Wednesday, what the transfiguration was to teach was that... I feel so far from y'all. Let me do this. The transfiguration was to teach that the presence of God is not something that you enter into. It's something that you remain in. See... Jesus was in the presence of God all the time. While he walked around in, in the ministry that he had on earth, he was sinless, so he was completely in the presence of God. But on the mountain, the men saw the presence of God on him. There was nothing different about Jesus. It was just different what they saw. Kind of like Elijah had a servant with him, and the servant was nervous about the surroundings. And Elijah said, Lord, would you open the eyes of my servant? And he saw the chariots of fire around him. Those chariots were there before he saw them. And what we need to think about is sometimes you don't feel the presence of God, but the presence of God is around us as Christians all the time. We don't need to think of it as, oh, we have to strain to reach the presence of God. We need to think of it as the presence of God is near us. It's in us. It's around us. We need to tap into it. We need to be aware. And I tell you, just because Stacy's here, I can't help but think of it. They talk about being in the moment. Understanding where you are in space and time and basically enjoying that moment. Well, in the kingdom, that principle works as well. No matter what the trial or tribulation you're in, you need to stop for a minute and go, wait a minute. The presence of God is with me because Matthew promises in the Great Commission that he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me. Furthermore, his spirit's in me as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Well, as you move on from that, if you, as you move on from the transfiguration, you see that those guys were enveloped in a cloud. Hebrews says... That that same cloud, cloud of witnesses, now surrounds us who believes. So, the whole point of the first part of the chapter is to teach us that the power, the presence of the kingdom of God is available to us now. And you don't need to think of it as something that you enter and then you leave at another time. It's something you're supposed to remain in. But tonight, where we're going to pick up with is in 14. Matthew 17, 14. Uh, and just, I'm going to start reading there, and we're also going to read this in another gospel. One of the neat things about teaching Matthew is it's one of the three synoptic gospels, meaning that Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke were all written from a similar uh, starting point. It's entirely likely that uh, Matthew was written first or that Mark was written first. People argue about that. And then the other writer used that as a framework to send out his in fact, Mark and Luke are so similar that most of the chapters actually line up. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? See, Luke was not an eyewitness account, and neither was John Mark. They compiled this from testimonies and from people who were living in the time of Christ. Matthew was the only eyewitness account. So these three are called synoptic gospels in that they all record the same events, but from a different man's perspective. They emphasize different things depending on the audience that they were teaching. And when you read this next account in the Synoptic Gospels, you see drastically different perspectives. And it's not 
it's not something that is different, that is a contradiction. It's something that is different for the purpose of emphasis. And uh, we'll read it in Matthew and then in Mark. And we're, we're really going to preach from Mark tonight. This will bless you, I think. Okay, starting in Matthew seventeen fourteen, When they came to the crowd, uh, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has had seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Where has Jesus been? He's been on a mountain, either Tabor or maybe uh, Hermon, probably Tabor. And he's been with which disciples? Who was at the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. So that leaves the other nine apostles, right? Or at this time they're called disciples. So when Jesus wasn't there, when the three that were closest to him in his inner circle were not there, a guy comes and he brings his son, who's demon-possessed to them, and they could not heal him. Okay? Y'all following me so far? I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Y'all flip to Mark. You hear how those events were just kind of described, not matter-of-factly, but there's not just a whole lot of emphasis on, on the Father, on the circumstances around it. or There's not a real explanation. To Matthew, writing what, who he was writing to, it was just impo- important to him that the audience understood nobody else could heal this guy, and Jesus could. But watch what Mark does. And I tell you, this, this just blessed my socks off. I've read, I don't know how many times I've read the book of Mark. I have never seen a couple words that were in this. And, uh, you know, first time I ever read the book of Job, okay? When you think of Job, you think of suffering, right? Uh, poor Job, he had boils on his head, boils on his feet. His whole family died in a day, all of those things. When I think of Job, I think of God's sense of humor. Now, I know that seems like a contradiction at first. But in the book of Job, around the 38th chapter, God speaks to Job. And he uses real sarcasm. He says, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with your voice from the heavens? He said, brace yourself like a man, because I'm going to question you. And then, he, and then Job speaks up, and God lets in on him again. Job says, hey, whoa, I spoke once. Behold, I spoke twice. I'm vile. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm vile, is is what he said. But God really, really put Job in his place. You're going to see here that what the apostles couldn't do because of unbelief, Jesus did, and he really put somebody in their place. And I, I just love it. I love the response. Not because Jesus is harsh. Really, you'll see his mercy in this. In Mark 9, we've got the same story of the transfiguration, the same account. And uh, verse 14 says, when they came to the other disciples, letting you know that Peter, James and John and Jesus were separated from the other disciples. Now they're reuniting. 
they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Now, that's an important detail to me. When you want to know why could the disciples not cast out this devil, there's a bunch of reasons. One is there's a group of the teachers of the law there and these disciples are engaged in a debate with them. We're always interested in winning debates. God is very rarely ever interested in even entering into a debate. He lets his actions prove himself. He, I mean, you never see Jesus begging anybody to follow him. You never see Jesus explaining himself to people. He simply teaches. They receive or they don't receive and he moves on. But his disciples, the novices in the faith, the people that were still learning, they have got into a squabbling match with the teachers of the law. Now, there are a lot of people I may be called to preach to. I might be called to teach Jennifer or Mandy or Stacy or Bill. You know who I'm not called to teach to? Those people that think that they're already teachers. You know, that's like going into a hospital and trying to heal the physician. You know, you, that's, that's not the purpose. You go into the hospital and look for the sick people, right? So the disciples are engaged in this debate with, with the uh, teachers of the law. As soon as they were, as soon as they all... I can't speak tonight, I'm sorry. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to meet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. You know, he didn't say, what are you discussing? He said, oh, disciples, I, I see that you're fervently preaching. You know, what are you preaching about? He said, what are you arguing with them about? Paul tells Timothy later, as an older man in the Lord, to a younger man on how to conduct himself in ministry. He said, avoid foolish arguments. You know, stay out of them. These disciples haven't learned this yet. A man in the crowd answered. In other words, Jesus asked the disciples and somebody from the crowd answers. It kind of lets you know that this is what they're arguing about. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Does anybody know why the disciples couldn't? I mean, just from previous readings. When you read this in Matthew and in Mark and Luke, it's pretty clear. They gave up before it came out. We're going to get to this. Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, you perverse generation. Not because they didn't believe that he could cast out the demon. Not because the disciples didn't believe but because they didn't stick it out until they saw it come about. See, last Sunday we discussed faith. Faith is trust-grounded obedience. But we discussed how faith completes a task. It's not faith just to begin something, and then when you face trials, turn away. It's faith to endure it until you complete it. Now, I'll tell you just from spiritual experience here, okay? Not some dragon slayer or, you know, I'm not lifting myself up here. But when you come into contact with the enemy, if he is convinced that you won't quit before he does, they come out quickly. You're going to see that with Jesus. If it thinks, if I hold on just a little longer, he'll give up. If I fight just a little more, he'll give up. Then they do. They fight forever. What happened in this case, and we're going to read and see this, is the disciples were put on the spot. They're there debating with these teachers of the law, and they were never called to do that. When Jesus sent them out, he sent them out to the towns, to the people, not to the teachers. But they're there debating, and somebody comes because they believe Jesus can do something. 
said, hey, heal my son. But Jesus is not there just as representatives. I don't know how many times somebody has come into a church believing Jesus would do something. Somebody who's hurting. Somebody whose life is broken apart by divorce or something. Believing Jesus would help them, but has been let down by Jesus' disciples. Because they didn't have the same perseverance that Jesus had. Jesus was willing to give his life for you. We're not willing to be inconvenienced for our brothers. You don't think that's true. Stop at a church parking lot when the service is let out and see how many people let somebody out in front of them. Go stand in Piccadilly and watch what happens when the silver hair crowd gets there and there's somebody in their way in line. You know, Jesus said, if somebody slaps you on the face, turn to them the other one also. Well, friends, most churches, if you slap somebody on the face, you better duck because they're not going to turn the other one to you also. We We have a long ways to go to be imitators of Christ. And that's what a disciple is. A disciple is not a learner. It's not just one who's disciplined. It's somebody who learns for the purpose of being like the teacher. It's not enough for you to be a hearer of the word. If you don't put it into practice, you're not a disciple of Christ. Well, we're all here tonight because we're striving to put this into practice. So the disciples couldn't, couldn't drive it out. And Jesus says in verse 19, Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. No, no. And see, you would never get that from Matthew because it doesn't mention the crowd, doesn't mention the argument. He's speaking to the crowd that once believed that the power of God was upon them when the boy showed up. And now their faith is totally defeated because the disciples gave up. And he's talking to the crowd. You unbelieving and perverse group of people. Now, the disciples are in that crowd. Okay, I mean, he's, he's chiding them as well. But guys, have you ever had your faith put on the line? And you didn't, you didn't fulfill your end of the bargain? And all the people around you then begin to lose faith? You know, there, to, to be faith, first off, God has to tell you to do it. Okay, you have to hear from God. There are a lot of people that set out in something called faith that was nothing more than positive thinking. If God didn't tell you it's going to heal your eyes, don't throw away your glasses. They're a blessing to you. Okay? But what happens when Christians begin a work and do not see it through to completion? And I'm not talking about a big work. I'm talking about little things in your life. You go tell your neighbor, hey, Jesus told me to bless you. I want to cut your grass. Then you quit halfway through. Is that a blessing to him? What is he going to think about you? You know? Oh, yeah, Jesus told him to do that. He he told him to come put this burden on my back. Now I have to get out there and finish it or everybody's going to laugh. You know, Jesus talked about counting the cost, and we've been building on this theme. He said, if you're going to go to war, first you need to count and make sure you have enough soldiers to win. If you're going to build a tower, make sure you have enough money to complete it. If you don't and you start to build and can't finish, people will ridicule you. Well, when, we ridic- when we're ridiculed and we call ourselves by the name Christian, it's Christ they're ridiculing. When we set out to do something for Jesus without having set our will on completing it, people ridicule Jesus for us not finishing it. There's a building in Baton Rouge. It's on Blue Bonnet. And anybody who's been in Baton Rouge knows what I'm talking about. They call it by this woman's name and call it her memorial. Because a preacher there started to build something in faith, got trapped up in sin, and never completed it. So there is this enormous testimony right there that all of Baton Rouge ridicules Jesus for. 
and ridicules that man for. It's got a barbed wire fence around it and it's not good for anything but vandalism. That is a very outward example of what we do in our lives when we pledge that we're going to love somebody, but when they disappoint us, we withhold our love from them. When we pledge, I will be there for you, and then we do not do it. When God tells me to befriend Stacy, and then Stacy and I get in an argument, and I, well, whether God said it or not, I mean, look at the way she's acting, you know. It brings ridicule and scorn to Jesus. Because we, if God wants to do something on the earth, He uses you. The church is called the body of Christ. If the body of Christ is the body of Christ, you are His hands and His feet. I, I, think about this for a minute, and then we're going to get back to the text. Who split the Red Sea? The Bible says God split the Red Sea. But when you read about it, who had to put their staff in the water and who had to pray? Moses. God used Moses' hands. The Bible says that Jesus healed people long after Jesus ascended. It was really Peter who put his hands on them, or Paul who put his hands on them, but it was the same as if Jesus did it because we are ambassadors for God. If you're an ambassador for God, you better follow through with what he tells you to do. Watch. So they brought him. Jesus said, bring the boy to me, and they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Don't think that just because you're a Christian, just because you now have access to the power of God, that the enemy suddenly doesn't affect you anymore. On the contrary, the more you try to do for God, the more he resists you. I heard from God that I'm supposed to convert a garage. What a simple thing. What a small task, really took big faith for me because that's just where I am in life. We've had plumbing problems, financial problems, everything you can think of. Because I'm trying to do something for Jesus. When that demon saw Jesus, it started wigging out. Trying to hurt the boy, trying to kill him, throw him on the ground. Then, before Jesus could set him free. Every time you get close to breakthrough in your life, it may not be a demon that comes through, but procrastination sets in. You know, a love for the world begins to tug at your heart. A desire not to follow through. It begins to weigh on you. You know, if you put a sign beside your bed that says, tomorrow I'll do that, every day you wake up, it'll say, tomorrow I do that. And you know what? It'll never get done. Everybody knows this quote. Nobody knows who said it. It was the Earl of Chesterfield said, never put off till tomorrow what can be done today. Well, that's a worldly axiom. But the way that it applies in the kingdom... It's when the Lord tells you to do something, like he said in John, there are only so many hours of daylight when it can be done. Night's going to come when nobody can work. We need to be quick about the Lord's business. We need to be concerned with what his will is and not with what ours is. My little boy. Jesus said, uh, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. Now, I know in the charismatic realm, people see this as a formula. If you come into contact with a demon, you need to know how many are there, how long he's been there, what his name is, who his brothers and sisters are. That's ridiculous. Jesus asked the boy's father some questions, just so, probably so that it would be written down, we, we would know what was going on. This is not a recent problem. The idea is this has been a stronghold for a long time. From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. 
But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help him. Listen to what the guy... Did the guy believe initially that Jesus could do something? Yes, or he would not have shown up there. He traveled from some distance to be there. But after seeing the people that represented Jesus, he became doubtful that Jesus himself could do it. This is what Paul said about the Jews. He said, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You people, your name is Israel. You're called the very princes of God, and yet you don't act like it. So people blaspheme God. The same thing is true of those of us that call ourselves Christians. When we don't act like Christians, when we don't do the things Christians do, it causes other people that would naturally be drawn to Him to go, well, if you can do anything for me. I mean, Mandy wants help in this area. But she sees that every time Eric asks for help, he returns right back to his vomit. So when she prays, he's, you know, Lord, I don't know if you can do it for me or not. Eric's been saying it, and you're not doing it for him. We need to get, I mean, we need to get a clue and really take the kingdom seriously. But this is, I never noticed this before, y'all, ever. Jesus, I love him. From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything... Take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus. Question mark. If you can? The guy is talking to the king of the universe there. And because his disciples did not persevere in their faith, he's now questioning Jesus. If you can. And I don't know whether Jesus said this with a smile or just a tone of disgust. I'm not, I'm not sure. But, I mean, he responds to him, if you can. Like, are you insane? Said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. I'm going to paint that on one of those walls in there. We don't need to come to God and pray, if you can. Lord, if it be your will. What a pansy thing to pray. If we as his children cannot discern what his will is... How can we go tell people what kind of God He is? We need to pray, discern what His will is, and then boldly take a stand for His will. He said, but what if I believe it's His will that somebody be healed? And we don't see that healing right away. Don't give up until you do see it. So that you might not cause God's name to be blasphemed among people. Too often Christians have this weak faith, that the idea that if I acknowledge it, it's faith. Faith is trust. You don't trust God if you don't act like it. And I tell you what, friends, about healing. If He can't heal you, He cannot save you. Those Greek words are the same word. You look them up. I'm no, I'm no scholar. But I have access to the same lexicons everybody else does. It is the same word. Say, so, well, why sometimes does it, do we see healing in this situation and not in the other? I don't know. I mean, I really don't. But you as a Christian can pray, discern what God's will is for you in that moment. And then when you believe you've heard, stick to it. So often we're like windshield wipers being tossed from side to side. I believe God told me this. Oh, oh, that's too hard. No. Lord, tell me something new. That's too hard. And we are so immature that nobody looks and says, man, that's God. When people see the Spirit with you, it's when you accomplish the impossible... Because God is in you. And everybody goes, I know Stacy couldn't have done that on her own. They see that she's a jar of clay. They say, so how did she do it? 
Oh my gosh. God's all-surpassing power is in her. You know, if we don't treat this like it's real, if we don't carry it to completion, all we do is cause doubt among other people. Jesus said there are two sons. It's Matthew 21. He said, one said, I won't go to the vineyard. Later went. The second one said, I'll go, but never went. He said, which one did the will of the Father? Well, it was the first. It's better for you to, when he tells you to do something, say no, like Jonah. Run the other way. And then later repent and come and bring it to completion. Then to say, oh, yeah, yeah, Lord, I'll do anything. I'll clean toilets from you, for you. And then when you get there and see that the toilets are nasty, that's probably not what God's telling me. You know, that must have been from Andy. You know, uh, here, here's what us charismatic Christians say. I just don't believe that's my ministry. It's not my calling. You know, it's good enough for the king of the universe, but me, I'm, I'm too good for that. You know, we always see our calling, our ministry as something grandiose. You know what Jesus did? He loved prostitutes. He loved tax collectors. He hung out with what everybody else considered scum and shunned those that everybody else considered important. You know, why can't we just be like Jesus? Why can't we love each other with sincerity? Why can't we stick by each other even when we don't agree? Even when we think somebody's off their rocker? Why can't we love them anyway? You know, the easiest, I mean, the group of people that is the most backbiting, devouring groups that you'll ever meet, meet in a church. They chew up their pastor like fried chicken after every service. What he did right, what he didn't do right. I remember being in those churches and I fell right into it as a little kid. Somebody get up and sing a special and try to do it for the Lord. And all I did was walk out and talk about how disgusting it sounded. Or, you know, how funny I thought they looked. Or, you know, what? that's not Christianity. Jesus looks at this man and says, If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. <laughs> he said, well, what on earth is he talking about? That really is faith. What he's really saying is, Lord, I want to believe. Help me get this unbelief out of me. If you admit your weakness with God, He will turn your weakness into a strength. Where you have unbelief, He will grant you belief. Where you have weakness, He will put strength in you. What He can't deal with is when you're proud and you hide your weaknesses. When you say, I'm well, I have no need of a doctor. You know, a lot of people in my life have looked and said, boy, what a screw up. And it's warranted. I know. I mean, I, I, this will blow you all away. I got drunk at a Christmas party. You know, he's a pastor and he did. I absolutely did. And I repented. Repented. Hadn't done it again. Repented to those people. And you know what? God will still use me. He'll use me powerfully. But if I tried to hide that, if I said, oh, no, I have never not like so-and-so. It's those other Christians who are bad. I've never made a mistake. God couldn't use me. That's a Pharisee spirit. And I've noticed those perfect people also don't ever have the guts to complete whatever God called them to do. They play it safe. If it be your will, Lord, take her out of the wheelchair. From a safe distance, mind you. Christians put their faith on the line. We do the impossible because for every, everybody who believes... It is possible. Now, that didn't mean you believe God for a Rolex and you expect it to show up. You need to be discerning what His will is. You know how they'll know we're Christians? The song says it's by our love. You can't see love. 
It's by the actions that they interpret as love. I can't see the wind out there, but I know when it's there because it sways the trees. I can't see love and I can't see faith. But love produces faith, and the only way I see either one is by the actions that those things produce in you. Our lives should tell a story to people. Eric may blow it a lot, but he will not give up until he sees the kingdom advance. He loved me when nobody else would. He may keep falling on his face, but he is hanging on to Jesus. See, we're so quick to point out others' weaknesses and say, Oh, did y'all hear about brother so-and-so? He can't seem to quit. All the time you're gossiping and sinning and that. But just so we'll know how to pray. Your sin of gossip is no worse than whatever sin they committed. We need to get to the place where we'll love people through their weaknesses instead of throwing them away because they have weaknesses. We're all like those early disciples. All we want to do is stand up and argue in front of the crowds with the uh, teachers so that we'll be seen as somebody. But when it comes down to actually delivering someone, sticking with it until it's done, no, we just give up. Oh, unbelief. Unbelieving and perverse generation. That's what Jesus called them. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running, I'm sorry, let me start back with 23. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Friends, if you're honest like that, you'll get whatever you need from God. He wanted to believe. He just needed, he needed Jesus. You know what he's saying? I want to trust you, Lord. Just help me. Give me more reasons to. Build my trust. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. Did Jesus pray? So what does he mean? See, I've heard everybody else teach on this. You know what they say? They say that the apostles should have prayed until it came out. Did Jesus pray to cast this out? So what's he saying? Help me out, Bill. What's he saying? If there's two, make them quick. Okay. Yeah, that's because some manuscripts include it and others don't. Prayer or fasting, either one. Did Jesus just fast here? No. So, my point is, he says, this only comes out by prayer, or if you read it that way, prayer and fasting. But Jesus didn't just do either one of those things. So, what's he saying? He's saying, friends, you have to be close enough with the Father. You have to be in communication through prayer with the Father. You have to be in His presence enough to know that when you stand there and you command it to go, you stick it out until it leaves. In Luke 18, which is a follow-up to this, he teaches them a parable. And he says, in Luke 18.1, he taught them the parable so that they would learn to pray and not give up. And right after he teaches the parable, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We don't have any problem believing for a short time. In fact, have you all ever seen those discovery things on like the Loch Ness Monster? 
or UFOs or Bigfoot? Come on, be honest with me now. I'm the only one watches those things. So I'm watching it, you know. And at first I said, ain't no Bigfoot, you know. Then they start showing me all the tracks and start hearing the eyewitness testimony. I start, maybe there is a Bigfoot. For a few minutes right after the show, I believe there's a Bigfoot. As time goes by, that fades. Most of us treat the gospel the same way. You believe it for an instant. You believe it for long enough to say that you're saved. But when it comes to putting it into practice, it just kind of fades out. We need to develop a kind of faith, a kind of trust for God that regardless of the circumstances that are around you, you believe God's able to perform what He promises. If God told you you would be married, then it does not matter how long you've been unmarried. That doesn't change the promise. The promise still stands. Your job is to believe it until it comes about and not to waver through unbelief. If God told you He would provide for you, it doesn't matter that your bank account is empty at the moment. It just means that you're looking for His provision to come and you need to act like it. We say we believe God, but our actions show that we don't. These disciples were there. They were supposed to believe Jesus. But when it came down to it, their actions showed that they didn't. They quit before... Jesus has already sent them out once. He said, I give you authority. I give you authority to trample on the enemy. I want you to drive out demons. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to raise the dead. They experienced it and did it many times, but this was a tougher case and they quit. We need to develop a persevering faith that will not quit. Now, if you all notice, almost every message I've preached for the last six months mentions persevering, trust, all those, because that's, that's what we have to do. Just, you know, just the, the hurdles that Jennifer and I faced this week. A few years ago, we had to quit. God has, is building our faith until you can endure it. And many of you, like, like a man who loves a woman, would court her. And build his relationship with her. Showing her that he's a good person. Doing things to show his love for her. Many of you, God is treating that way. He is wooing you like a lover. Showing you that he's a good God. Uh, Trying to build your trust and gain your confidence so that you can take bigger steps in him. So that you can learn to let go of the umbilical cord that you have attached to the world. For all of the world's pleasures. For all of the world's offerings. And you can say, no, I turned my back on it and I'm following you. And he's being patient. But today is a day of salvation. The Bible says it's today indicating that there will be a day called tomorrow when you can't be saved. We need to not treat lightly the things of God. We need to not treat his grace with contempt. You're a Christian and he's been putting up with habitual sin in the same area in your life for years and years and years. You need to do so. You need to treat it as a life and death situation. You need to run for help. Like a merchant who saw a pearl on the ground and went back and sold everything that he had to obtain that pearl, you need to do that. If your computer causes you to sin, throw it out of your house. But I need it. You don't need it. You need to walk with God in holiness more than you need the benefits of that computer. Or a TV or a car or anything else. Right down to where Jesus talked about your body members. I'm talking about developing an all or nothing attitude for Jesus. This doesn't mean we're some kind of religious fanatics walking around telling everybody they're going to hell. 
I have never seen somebody on the street yelling at other people that they're going to hell. Somebody fall down and say, oh, well, what must I do then to be saved? The Spirit's already in the world convicting them of sin. More so in the body of Christ, you know when you're wrong. You don't need me to tell you that. I might tell you you're wrong when you're not. i got a different standard sometimes than Jesus has. I'm trying to get mine right. But what you need to learn to do is to be close, intimate with God so He can show you and encourage you how to overcome it. We ought not be tomorrow where we were today. We need to be growing beyond, further, changing. All the prophecies around New Year's, all of them, this is a year of change. And I believe it. It's happening radically. We've got people going to other states to start schools. You know? We've got people moving to new neighborhoods, enrolling their, their kids in other schools, all because God is moving us. But it takes faith to complete it. You can't just start it or else the world will ridicule you for it. You know the first thing I thought? <laughs> if I convert my garage and buy 50 chairs, what happens if six months from now there's still only five people in those 50 chairs? You know, God doesn't much care what people think about me. He cares about me being obedient to Him. Why are we not willing to be humiliated for the kingdom? Why do we serve God with a few restrictions? Only if it you know, makes me look good, Lord. Only as long as everybody understands and supports what I'm doing. Jesus didn't have anybody that stood by Him and what He did. None. They all deserted Him. They all left. And He did everything right. We don't. He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. You need to have a life of intimate communion with God if you want power over the enemy. Most of the time we pray, we believe God for a little while, then we run right out and we dig it up in doubt. You know, we planted the seeds of faith. It's time to nurture it, time to water it, time to let it grow. But when we didn't see it, when we ordered at this window and the order wasn't ready at the next window, we want to take our ball and go home. God doesn't work that way. He's not a cosmic genie or a big Santa Claus in the sky. They're just granting your wishes at your whim. You don't jerk his chain and he comes running and says, what, what can I do to help you? You serve him. He doesn't serve you. And if you won't come to Christ under those terms, you can't come at all. Regardless of what the TV preachers say. They just want your money. I don't care whether you get Jesus or not. They want your money. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Now get this. The disciples. You could be mad at them, right? They blew it. They blew it and they blew it in front of all of the crowd. Jesus had to come bail them out. Was Jesus mad at them? No, he takes them off by themselves. He didn't want anybody to know where they were so he could teach them. And if you've been blowing it, Jesus is not going to throw you away. He spent the most precious substance on the earth, His blood, for you. Now, if I paid thousands and thousands of dollars for this carpet, I'm not going to let you spill motor oil on it, right? Because it's precious to me. I spent a lot on that. Well, Jesus spent His very life on you. He's not going to treat you badly or throw you away lightly. When the disciples made a mistake, He took them off by themselves and He spent time with them teaching them so that they could overcome it. He's so merciful. He'd do the same thing with you. Any area that you're not measuring up in, you don't have to be all sad and, and broken about that. You need to ask Him for His help and then allow Him to teach you. But you know what the church is? The church is always requesting instruction and never applying it. 
You know, the people that show up, especially in a larger church, pastor, pastor, we want counsel. As if a pastor is some kind of poor man psychologist. You know, I tell you right now, I'm not qualified to tell you anything other than what's in the Word. You need to go see somebody else better qualified if you want something besides what's in the Word. And you can hear what's in the Word on Sundays and Wednesdays. And if we should happen to go get coffee to counsel, all I'm going to tell you what's, is, is in the Word. Why don't you just get it on Sunday and Wednesday so we don't have to do it the other times of the week. But when you see the line and they say, Pastor, we want counsel, those people are the ones that don't get the Word on a regular basis in church. Always. Always. I've been around this now 11 years. And you do not see people that show up, that are studying their Bible through the week, that are showing up for the service, reading, taking notes, listening, and are engaged in it, requesting counsel all the time. You don't see that. Jesus took them aside and he taught them. And he finished by saying, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. After their faith failed in this situation, and Jesus demonstrates the right way to do it, then he takes them aside. Then he takes them aside so he can teach them by themselves. Why do you think he ended with that? Son of man's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over and killed. He's trying to prepare them in advance for the most devastating thing that could ever happen to their faith. Which is when they see him killed and they don't understand why. So that they can think back on it and go, this is like when we tried to cast out that demon we gave up too soon. If we're destroyed now while we've just seen him dead, if we give up right now, we may not see the victory. But if we hold in there and believe the promises, three days later we'll see him rise. Forty days later, we'll watch him ascend. Fifty days, we'll see his spirit return to us. And you know what? John was the only one who stood by him at the cross. The only one. You know, they still didn't get it. We have the opportunity to learn from their mistakes. You need to know these things from tonight. Wednesday nights are always short teachings because we all work. You need to know this. Number one, real faith does not quit until the job is done. And friends, that's not, we're not always talking about hours here or days. We're talking about years. I know people that have prayed for 14, 15 years for a child and then had it. You're struggling with addictions and it's been a decades kind of thing. Well, don't quit until you win and seek all the help you can possibly get. Humble yourself until you're willing to do anything. God can't work through your pride. Not only does faith not quit until the job is completed, you need to learn this axiom. Put it on your heart. Apply it everywhere you go. Everything is possible for him who believes. Next time you look at a mountain and you think it cannot be crossed, but God says cross it, you need to remember everything is possible for him who believes. God calls you to do the impossible to prove that it was only because of your belief that it was done. Dad, you got some skills to start a school. Okay, but the skills that you need, you don't have all of them. You've never done this from beginning to end. It's natural that God would call you because you have some background in it. But if it was all within your grasp, he wouldn't use you to do it because you would get all the glory for it. It has to be beyond your means for him to get credit for it. He didn't call me to do something that is easy to do. 
that everybody would go, oh yeah, well that was obviously within Eric's abilities. He'll call you to do things that are beyond your ability so that it's only through your trust-grounded obedience to Him that it can be accomplished. That's how He gets credit for your work. Don't be surprised when He speaks to you visions that are bigger than you. Don't be surprised if you seem to be going the wrong way from them. Sometimes it's like a bowstring being drawn back to gain experience, gain power, let go to fly with enough strength to reach it. I was called in 1993. We are in 2004, and I'm still not in the fullness of that calling. I'm approaching it. I think I've finally reached the furthest point back in being let go. But he's been drawing me back for these 11 years. So that I will have enough experience and enough trust in Him to fly straight and hit that target. You need to look at your lives in that way. If you don't get anything else, you need to have hope tonight. You know, hope ought not be out of your reach if everything is possible for Him who believes. It doesn't matter how many times you failed. It doesn't matter how many times you promised God you wouldn't and did. Everything is possible for you who believe. And he's not looking at you with a chance to, oh, I wish Stacy would move a little bit to the left instead of the right so I could smash her. You know, he's not looking for the opportunity to throw Jennifer away. He's invested enormously in you. I had a boss tell me one time, Eric, I obviously value you. Look what I have invested to get you here. I never thought of it that way. God has invested so much in your life just to keep you alive to this point. All the power of hell would like to snuff you out. You're dangerous to the enemy. And if he's invested that in you, he will complete the task if only you will trust him. Everything's possible for him who believes. Everything. That's how churches start in garage and end up in the compact center. Which is not my vision, but that's happening. Somebody had to believe that God could do something like that. The vision had to be birthed. And I am sure there are times that they thought it would never happen. Or a feed store. That's how God takes a man like Smith Wigglesworth with a third grade education. A plumber. And makes him a mighty healing evangelist. People didn't sit around and say it's because of Smith's great learning that he's doing that. Guy couldn't even read. Are you dreaming big dreams for Jesus? And once he's spoken to you, will you follow it through? When the Son of Man comes to revisit your life, will he find a task completed? Will you have invested the talents and given a return? Or are you going to bury them in the sand and hide them? Yo, we need to be about the kingdom's business. That's what Matthew's about tonight. You need to remain in the presence of God. You need to finish the things that you start for God. And you need to know that everything's possible for you if you'll just believe Him. That's not some hyper-faith kind of slogan. That's reality. If you believe Him, it is possible. All right, y'all stand up. We'll pray.